show. It is that time of the week again. It is time for the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEWLP 107.7 FM, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and we have one hot topic in the studio today. We are going to be talking about housing with, of course, regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser and Bob Stevens, as well as Craig Miskovich. Uh, who are in the studio with us today. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Emily, would you help warm up listeners and remind them what kind of conversations we've been having on the happy hour lately? Hi, Olga. So here on the happy hour, since the session ended, we've been diving into what makes Vermont policy Vermont policy. What are some of the assumptions that go into the work we're doing, how we do it, why we do it? We spent the first month talking about public participation, community meetings, town meetings, how we deliberate and negotiate and bring people into the process. And then we talked about how we legislate morality. We talked about public space, sex work, drugs, public speech. Olga just made a face, which made me think I'd forgotten something, but I'm just going to keep on talking here. I think you're good. Great. And then we... (laughs) Olga just makes faces. <laughs> Wonderful. She does. It's true. Um, and we are now talking about infrastructure, essentially. We talked about farms and farmland, a little bit about the regulations that lead us to have the land that we have. We talked about housing finance last week with Maura Collins, who's the director of the Vermont Housing Finance Agency. And today we're going to talk about development, and I'm really excited to do that. And we're going to unpack some of the mystical magic that leads to how things happen in Southern Vermont and how things don't. Especially around housing. Mm -hmm. Well, Bob Stevens and Craig Mitskovich, thank you so much for being in the studio today. Just quickly, uh, we're curious from, from both of you. We, we know you in Brattleboro as part of the team behind the Brooks Project, the, the Brooks House, um, and in Bennington behind the Putnam Block. Uh, but we're curious, how did you get to where you are now? How did you come to be like, yes, housing, this is something we're looking at. Mixed-use buildings, this is what we're going to look at. How did you get here and now? Uh, thanks, Olga. Uh, I, I'm from a very rural part of the world, from northern Minnesota up on the um, the Iron Range, the uh, the Masabi and Vermilion Iron Ranges, um, and much much smaller communities. Uh, my hometown, growing up, was uh, Pengilly, Minnesota, that had maybe 150 people, wow. and then moved to Coleraine, Minnesota, when I was went to high school, and that was about a thousand people or so. Uh, so I'm I'm from and comfortable with rural places. Uh, I I. I'm in Vermont, uh, as I like to say, because of the, the love of a good Vermont woman. Um, my, my wife and her family are from uh, Jacksonville, Vermont. Uh, and so after bouncing around in more urban places, uh, including Boston and New York and Hartford, uh, during our 20s and our 30s, we, we came, back to, um, came back to Brattleboro. And when we came back to Brattleboro, I think for, I, I tend to be a bit of a contrarian, and I think for contrarian reasons because compared to where I was it was a, it was a very cheap place to live mm-hmm. um, the housing was affordable and I could send my kids to really good 
professional, competent public schools. And, and that continues to be the way I view Brattleboro even today, that you know, we've sent our children to public schools through Green Street and BAMS and, and BOHS, and we've been delighted with, with, um, with those schools. Um, we've been delighted with the houses we've been able to buy and the, and the community in which we live. Um, so I'm a lawyer. I, I'm a, I work at Downs Rockland Martin, and I, I have a, you know, a bit of a watch one, do one, teach one mentality. And I saw um, some others who were able to bring capital into our community, um, and I thought that was a, a clever way to use federal, state incentives to get things done. And then you know, Bob and I started to kind of put those projects together um, as we saw opportunities and, and uh, defici deficiencies in the community. Thanks, Craig. How about you, Bob? So, um, yeah, my, my uh, family thread goes back pretty far in Vermont, and uh, all my life I've lived in sort of rural areas, but I've been in Brattleboro for about 30 years now doing design work and engineering work. Uh, it's only over the last um, you know, four or five years that uh, started to realize that um, you know, a deeper understanding of working on projects and realizing just how difficult that is. Uh, and that led us to sort of learning uh, different ways to bring in capital, as Craig described. And so looking forward to talking more about that. Thank you. And you two together, you both have your own separate business lives, and then together you have another firm. Is that correct? Uh, I, I was a, a founder of M&S Development. Okay. I'm, I'm no longer uh, an equity partner. partner partner in that um, business, although I do a lot of work with them. Okay. Because of my legal career, it's, it's easier for me to not um, own things that I represent, if that gets to be really kind of thorny. It seems mm -hmm. quite confusing. Yeah. 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 Okay. Good it's to know. also Thanks. helpful. The only way we learned this business is through Craig's expertise doing the tax credit program and the legal work that he does. So it's oh, really interesting. brought the knowledge to town to know how to do this. Yeah. Thank you. So, Emily and I, one reason we wanted to talk to you is we were at a public hearing. Is it last week or the week before? It now? was at some point in the recent past. We were in <laughs> Pelos Falls. Everything's this, run together by now. It has, especially <laughs> this season. Um, and so the Senate Economic Development Committee, which has um, purview over housing, is touring the state and meeting with different people and asking about what housing looks like. In most other communities... From what I understand, the big focus has been on what businesses want and need in terms of housing, especially for their workforce. And in Bellows Falls, the conversation was a little bit broader, but the chair of the committee, who's not from here, kept on asking, well, how do we get development here? What does development look like? And everyone there kept on sort of defaulting to say that, you know, it was the two of you or nothing. And I've heard this thread over the last few years around you know, a business immediately it costs more to build anything in Vermont than you it will be worth the day it opens. Um, and so there's no incentive for a developer to ever develop anything here. And yet you all are doing it. So I'm curious to even just start with why, why you think that's a good use of your time. And and just before you, you guys answer, I'll add one clarification to that. Wyndham Windsor Housing Trust attended the meeting and they talked a lot about their uh, nonprofit uh, 
organization and the the housing they did but when it came to private developers yes that, thank that you weren't for nonprofit, that. that's when your name came up mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so maybe I'll, I'll start bob has a uh, a more uh fluid understanding of the economics sometimes than i do uh, but i i i want to make sure that when we talk about development in the state of Vermont right now, and we talk about it in southern Vermont, what we're talking about is redevelopment. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, you know, and, I, and I know development has you know, a pejorative uh, kind of connotation and probably should because we really shouldn't be plowing under cornfields in southern Vermont. We, we don't, we, we, you know, we are redeveloping spaces. That's, that's our kind of market niche. Uh, and the reason that's important is because the new construction um like like reconstruction but new construction would probably end up costing $300 a square foot once you're completed you've you've completed the uh construction especially if you are building in those infrastructure costs that might fall onto a, a developer's shoulders and to your point Emily it it might be worth $100 a square foot and who cares, right? I mean, if, who cares if a developer is $200 per square foot underwater after they you know, finish with the project? Well, it, there's, there's two problems. One... Well, the developer cares. The developer <laughs> cares. So they're, they're not here. Yes. Right? So, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's more a, a, a statement about the class of folks who have just decided this is such an illogical place to try to do what they're doing. They all left. Um, and... And less about you know the work that Bob and I do, but the 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 work that we do is centered around finding those projects that everybody thinks are so important that they're going to participate in whatever way that they can. And we'll we'll talk about all the ways folks can participate, including and especially the state of Vermont. But that that's the the nub of the problem is that to develop or redevelop spaces in Vermont, Southern Vermont in any rural place in America right now, the cost to do so far exceeds the value. And, if, and you might be underwater on the equity. You also, you, you can't borrow money. You can only borrow so much money. And the, the m- amount of money that you can borrow to be able to build something and to do something in this community and every community in America is based not on the $300 it costs, but the $100 that it's worth. And uh, that's, that's the value okay. proposition that we try to solve. And so can I ask a question about just that $300 per square foot. So across rural America is the challenge not that, I mean, I know it's a sort of a chicken and the egg, but not that it costs such an exorbitant amount to build here versus say in wherever you said you were from. I already forgot because I'm so embarrassing. Minnesota. The East Coast, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> the it doesn't necessarily cost more to build here than it does in Minnesota, but in fact, just the property is worth less than it would be in other parts of the country. Yeah. Is that, how I, does that, actually, can we unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I think, the, I think the issue isn't so much the cost, and this is often the, you know, the conversation goes, well, we should be able to build something for less money, or why does it cost so much to build here? I think the issue is more on the market side. Okay. Our marketplace Good. has not kept up with the cost to build. So the value of a building is has to do more with what the marketplace will pay for rents, mm-hmm. um, and that and what the marketplace will pay for rent has to do with your economy. Yes. And so, if people are able, if to, our wages are so 
resoundingly low mm-hmm. across the board here for the most part, exactly. unless you're really, yeah, yeah so then if you we, can't pay a higher rent. If we lived in a place where the wages were higher, people mm-hmm. could pay more rent, they could then afford to pay for the construction. And somewhere that got out of whack. Mm-hmm. You know, this area and a lot of rural America, the marketplace fell behind. Uh, you know, at some point um, in other times, we were closer to par. Mm-hmm. where, um, you know, if you had a retail store, you were making enough money to pay higher rent, so therefore that higher rent could subsidize taking care of a building or renovating or building a building. That hasn't been the case here for... Uh, about you know, 20 years? About 20 years. Yep. I would mm-hmm. say that, you know, you can look back at data when people were moving up here in the 70s and 80s. Um, at some point uh, in the early 90s, it really turned upside down and mm-hmm. it's just gone worse. Um, I don't think the the rents in where we're sitting in downtown Brattleboro, they haven't appreciably changed since I've been in town in 1988. You know, 30 years, the rent downstairs on the retail space uh, was 10 to 12 bucks a square foot. Maybe it's 15 now. But the rents in the apartments upstairs right. have all gone up considerably. Yeah, rents in apartments. So the the market demand is growing. Yes, so it is. Apartments are so tight. Uh, and also you're seeing a, um, a different demand for housing than we've had historically. So it used to be that most people, when you got started paying rents high enough to own a home, people would rather own a home and have that asset to build. Um, now many people don't want to own a home, mm-hmm. and so they would like nicer products and, and products that have amenities. And so people who can afford to pay higher rents are willing to do that, and that's helping um, rents for housing go higher. Um, so they are, uh, you know, housing prices, if you're in market rents, as we call them, 100 to 120%, might be 30% more than retail and office. Interesting. But okay. it's still not quite enough to justify building. You know, you're not mm. quite there. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, when, when we talk about housing in Vermont, you know, we often talk about um, the housing crisis. And Emily, you you put it really well last time when we talked to to Mara about how everyone has a different experience of how this this crisis works or what's behind it. But but from the point of view of development, um, where are things getting hung up? I mean, you you talked about market rents, but are there other issues like permitting or? what developable land is still left or or what buildings are so far gone you really can't rehab them i mean like are there other things where the process is getting hung up well we could talk about that for a while as well i I, you know in my view the primary issue is that the economics are broken Mm -hmm. you know the permits don't help but it adds uncertainty it can take things longer. There are rare occasions when, when you can't acquire the permit. Um, it adds to the cost. Uh, you know, it incrementally increases the cost. But it is really so far out of whack in terms of the economics that, um, you know, you could get through that. You know, if the economics were stronger, maybe you'd work your way through that. And, and we, I think, again, you know, we could have the conversation about uh, our environmental permitting, our zoning, and the degree to which uh, we try to describe what we want the marketplace to deliver to the society in terms of community values, but those are just in some ways added burdens that means that nothing gets delivered. You know, and you're looking at alternatives and choices and how do you make this happen? Uh, if you, it's a very risky business to go into development and spend money at risk for years ahead of having any revenue coming in. 
um, more of those barriers come up, the less likely it is to get to the point of somebody making that decision to invest. And we're actually um, talking to Mike Pichak right after you two, um, a pre-record, but with the idea that regulation can be a burden on development or growth of a sector, but it's usually, as you said, the uncertainty around that regulation. It's not the regulation itself. So in if an agency or the laws surrounding enabling that agency are clear, transparent, and predictable, my understanding is that business is fine. You can account for that. It's when you have no idea how long something will take to get permitted or don't know if it's going to be yes or no this particular time. Does yeah, that? I, I, th okay. I think that's true. Uh, it's true of my clients. When I talk to them as a lawyer uh, and they want a, they want certainty in the permit process, mm -hmm. um, certainty both in cost and certainty in time. And that's difficult in Vermont's unique, or at least rare, uh, regulatory environment. I, I, you know, I'll try to put a positive spin, and positive spin on the work that Bob and I have done, is that if, if you want uh, consistency, certainty, and efficiency um, uh, permitting, do it downtown. Mm -hmm. Do it where there's no additional infrastructure that either the, the developer or the municipality is going to have to pay for. The state doesn't worry about that as much. And if we're redeveloping our existing places, then largely Act 250 is and should be irrelevant mm -hmm. because that is about developing places that haven't been developed before. So you know, we've, I don't, in the Brooks House, that. That wasn't even jurisdictional. It wasn't no. even there was no Act 250 jurisdiction Very for the entire building. That. It was easy to permit. The Putnam um, block project in Bennington, easy to permit. It had other challenges, but it doesn't have permitting challenges, where folks run into more permitting uncertainty and expense, and and time is when they're developing on the periphery of our of our communities. And in some ways, that is the point of Act 250, and for you know better or for worse and certainly I know is not working exactly the way it was intended but we really want to promote downtown growth and infill is that the mm -hmm. sort of sure. housing term for what you all are doing how about someone give a quick definition of infill for those listeners who may not know what it is well infill would be putting a new building within the context of an existing street and infrastructure and other buildings so a vacant lot along a street if you're filling that in as opposed to building new roads and and plowing up greenfield, as we call it. So the snow block so, yeah, would be a great example. example. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah. And the, the other, again, I'll try to be as positive as I can, the other positive nature of our historic settlement patterns in Vermont is that we have very hyper-dense, especially in residential density, um, areas separated by large, uh, undeveloped um, spaces. And the, it's the hyper-developed, that high residential density that also, that's going to drive down the cost of housing. Mm -hmm. you know, housing is related to the density, the number of units per acre. And whenever you can drive up the units per acre, you're going to drive down the cost per unit. And Brattleboro has one very high residential density, especially in our core downtown mm -hmm. with our multi-floor buildings, but even in our multi-family houses, you know, just outside that first ring outside our, our downtown core. And that's, that's going to be, you know, one way to reduce the cost is to keep that density up. And we have zoning, I believe, that recognizes that, mm -hmm. prioritizes that, requires that. 
but large two three acre residential subdivisions are not financially feasible they're probably not what the the state wants to incent in the first place but they're they're not happening because they're not financially feasible but it seems that you've managed to make this redevelopment feasible so tell us about tell us about how you did the brooks house well all of our projects so it's just like wind and windsor housing trust mm-hmm. and we use some form of subsidy in the form of tax credits to make those numbers work mm-hmm. so the brooks house was an example where the the total cost to build that project was over three hundred dollars a square foot including acquisition and soft costs and the various things we had to do to what are acquisition and soft costs oh so the cost to buy it mm-hmm. so the the cost to purchase the property and the land the uh, cost to design and pay all a bunch of consultants to do different things, those are all soft costs. Mm-hmm. And then there's the cost to construct. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about the cost to construct, maybe we can get down around $200 a square foot, but there's another third of other types of cost. And then at the at the rents that that property generated. Uh, so In the past or right now? We're, we're a little higher now on the housing, but we're pretty close to what was paying for retail okay. in the past. Mm-hmm. It didn't change dramatically. Um, because that's what the market is. Mm-hmm. So at the highest rents that we can get in this town, the building was worth about $100 a square foot. So a three to one ratio of a gap, essentially. And that gap was filled um, with um, federal tax credit programs um, because it has benefits to the community economically. So we could qualify for certain uh, ones of those who were historic tax credits. Uh, and there was a lot of support from the state and locals, and in particular, the colleges coming as anchor tenants. Mm-hmm. Uh, without them to sort of be on board with rental, we probably never would have gotten the debt and the loans uh, for that project. So it's a very complex sort of financing process that takes a lot of time and effort um, and was duplicated in the Putnam. And it can be done in certain places and at certain scales. Mm-hmm. You know, So that's the other challenge is that um, you know these are... $20 million projects and we, uh, you know, 20 to 30, you know, we look to do them at eight to 10 and we start to have challenges even at, at that scale at an eight to $10 million scale. So if you want to buy a downtown building for and, and renovate it and do that for less than a million dollars, a lot of these subsidies go away and yet the, the math is virtually the same. So it, it becomes quite challenging. So how do all of I know our listeners are going to want to know the answer to this question. How do these tax credits work? What are they? Whose credit is it? Where does the money come from? Yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> let me let me take a shot at that. I, I was when you were doing the introduction, Emily. I noted that this conversation literally and figuratively follows his, you know, sex and drugs, and now we're going to talk money. about how to bring capital to communities. It's. I, I remember. <laughs> 10 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, as, as I was starting my, my career here in Brattleboro, worried about our access to capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is not a very sexy topic, but I, I, I think, you know, from my profession, especially, and from the work that Bob and I do now, it's, it's really important that we find ways to bring capital to these communities. Um, so all of these tax credit programs, and, and they are, I'll give credit also to the state of Vermont here. The state of Vermont has a very efficient tax credit for working in uh, downtowns. Our, our um, uh, downtown uh, tax credit, 
what is I'm sorry. Right, that's right. The, uh, the, the, down, down, the downtown tax credit yeah. is very efficient. It, it's, it's, it's effectively a, a chit that you get from the state of Vermont and that you can go sell, um, for lack of a better word, to a taxpayer who has a tax obligation to the state of Vermont. And instead of paying the tax obligation to the state of Vermont, they'll pay that tax obligation to the, the holder of that chit who's doing the development where the, ta- where the, the state wants it to occur. That's, that's also, in effect, how new markets tax credits work or federal historic tax credits work or, or CDBG grants even to a lesser extent. But it's harder to monetize those. It's more complicated. And Can we talk about monetizing those tax credits? Because I was actually explaining this to some, um, a group of folks from Tripark last night, and they wound up asking so many questions that I was all of a sudden realized, oh, maybe I don't actually understand this, even though I can go to a certain length. So why would someone, does someone pay you more than the tax credit's worth? Do they pay you less than the tax credit's yeah. worth? Why would they rather buy the tax credit than just have their own money it's a that's a great who question. motivates that's, these people and is, who are they? That is at the core of of an industry, and it's an industry. Yeah, that's uh, a core at the core of the the tax credit industry. Tax credits at the level that we're talking about when we did the Brooks House and Putnam Block and other projects, they're commodities, mm-hmm. um, and they're they are purchased by uh, folks who have what we call you know tax appetite, large corporations that have taxable income every single year and they'll buy that tax credit in effect um, for a slight discount but not very much they 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 do it for other reasons and so um, uh, u.s bank Mm -hmm. they are a wonderful partner to vermont we should always remember that because u.s bank capital is in the brooks house that's how that got done u.s bank capital is in the putnam block and they buy that tax credit that which they can only take over a long period of time for very close to par very close to the value of the credit itself Mm -hmm. and they're getting a return on that investment if you're calculating a return that is very small far under a market rate return for their investment they might get some community reinvestment act credit as well which is another federal uh, banking program but they buy the credit for a bit less than they're going to get in the credit over a number of years mm-hmm. um, because they are generating tax taxable income for many you know for the for the next seven years which is the compliance period so that's that's in essence how a, a tax what, so works. what are the other things they get out of it other than the tax credit or the other reasons that they might want to do that uh, they, they again they'll get the community Re- reinvestment act credit possibly mm-hmm. um, but they're also uh, you know they're different kinds of, of participants but they are um, and actually I think maybe with a supreme case or two recently they're literally a citizen right mm-hmm. and there are different <laughs> kind of citizen that gets a different kind of civic benefit mm-hmm. and the civic benefit they get is they get to tell others and their shareholders and and in communities like Brattleboro mm-hmm. that you know they are making investments in communities like ours it's one of the things I've really admired about about your projects when I looked at them is many years ago, I worked overseas brokering public-private partnerships, but doing it at a really large scale, you know, a national government partnering with, say, Coca-Cola or... Um, but at a s- corporate scale where people were able to look across 50 years and had the resources to look across 50 years and to know that if a market was being developed, if a, an economy was growing in their community, then that would be the 
in the best interest of that corporation. Vermont companies rarely have the capital to be able to look that far into the future and see that a thriving community is in their economic best interest and be able to invest in it. They might be able to see that, but they might not have the extra capital to invest in it. And so with something like a U.S. bank, I know that they have sort of the corporate image that they're getting, but are they also really thinking about what it would mean for rural America to have a sustainable economy? Is that still of interest to American corporations like U.S. Bank? It, it is. It's, that is an interest in the people that I talk to at U.S. Okay. Bank. On, because what they, what they will do, um, and I shouldn't, I guess, Hypothetic, this hypothetical pick bank. on them yeah. or, or um, uh, congratulate them uh, either too much or too little. It's what, what those tax credit investors do is they say to a subset of the group, we want you to have different incentives. We want you to have a different philosophy on how you use the money. Mm-hmm. And the way that U.S. Bank um, Community Development Corporation, which I think is the, the uh, U.S. CDC, yeah, uh, U.S. Mm-hmm. Bank Community Development Corporation, their goal is to deploy funds into communities to strengthen you know, those communities. Okay. And so that is consistent with their, their, their goals. I mean, I don't know that that's the, the overarching um, uh, corporate uh, goal of all of those tax credit investors, but I don't have to worry about that. I just no. have to worry about the group that has the same mission as I do. Thanks. So we need to go to break, but before we do, I want to ask one clarifying question to, to make sure I have tax credits in my head correctly. In some ways, they are, are a mechanism that's not necessarily raising more money. It's just changing where the money is going to. So it could be going to the state in taxes, but instead it's going to this project. That's, that's exactly right, that's right. That, the, mm-hmm. that, that the state says, instead of us collecting money, and then I guess redeploying it back out to communities through some other program, the state will voluntarily, intentionally reduce its revenue that it's going to generate in taxes by directing that revenue to some other source. Fantastic. Thank you. It's always good to have the mechanics right. So we are going to head on over to a word from our underwriters right now, and we shall return in a moment. Hey, everybody. We are back here on the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and I am in the studio right now with Emily Kornheiser, Bob Stevens, and Craig Miskovich when we are talking about housing and development. And we should remind people, Emily, that the views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and the guests and not the radio station. Every time you read that, it reminds me of this poetry class I took in high school and all of these rules we had around how we would talk in critique sessions <laughs> and how much we had to hedge everything we said in this opinion language as if it was not already obvious that it's a poetry critique class and everything we say is an opinion mm-hmm. and it, every time I get this flashback to this very awkward room full of very awkward teenagers so my, my praise of large <laughs> national and international tax credit investors <laughs> might not be consistent with the views of WVW. I recognize that. Yeah. Well, I think Emily and I trust our listeners enough to know 
They know. <laughs> they do know. And I think, you know, WVEW is not a corporation. And so they don't have any opinions. Um, so <laughs> one thing that many folks around Brattleboro ha- do have an opinion about is market rate apartments and what it means to have a market rate apartment. And given just the profoundly low vacancy rate in this town, how low wages seem to be and stagnating. Really curious to understand from you all why you think there's value in having market rate apartments. So um, I, I guess in, our, in my opinion, um, if you had a healthy downtown, you'd have a normal distribution. You'd have uh, not a concentration of poverty, but some low-income apartments, a lot of of housing in the middle for working people, and then some that are higher. And that diversity, we think, is healthy. Um, It provides uh, people uh, who can live next to each other and contribute in different ways. Um, All of that housing uh, has a ripple effect. So everybody that lives, particularly in a downtown place, um, everybody that lives there spends money there. They shop, they walk, they you know, they really support the life of the city, if you will, on the main street. And that's the reason that people want to live downtown is because there's life. So having that, um, I, I think, is, is critical to having a functioning kind of mixed-use, walkable place. Um, the market rate um, is really serving a niche uh, that has grown over, uh, perhaps increasingly growing over the last uh, 10 or 15 years that has a lot to do with our demographics. Mm-hmm. So we have an, a, a very much an aging population and a lot of uh, people who, as they get older, want to live in a walkable place. And there, there have not been products for that. And then we have a younger population of millennials who also don't want to own houses out in the country, although that's a, all of this are general, general statements, um, but would prefer to not have to worry about taking care of a place. And so... It is so, so much work. It, it, it it's is. really terrible and, how know, much work and, it is to have a house. And capital to take care of it. <laughs> yes. And time. And if you don't want to spend that time and money, renting an apartment uh, can be a good option for those people. So that that mixture of housing makes for a, a dynamic place uh, and a more lively place and a more healthy place um, so that you're not excluding, you know, one side or the other. Um, and I think... You know what we're seeing in our downtowns uh, and in our you know more concentration concentrated areas of, of multifamily housing is an introduction of um, uh, of middle income and higher income units that did not exist. So historically, it had been units that were either created uh, for people who were renting because they could not afford to own. You know, it used the conventional wisdom was that. You know, when the rents got to, to the point where you could support a mortgage, everybody would just go out and get a mortgage. And I think that that's changed. And one thing we've spoke with more about last week, and I think we've talked about before, and I'm sure you've been part of conversations like this, is that as those folks um, who are older and are moving into rental apartments leave their houses, that frees up those houses to be purchased by families who will move into them and perhaps move out of middle income rental spaces. And so we're creating some movement in the market by doing that as well. And that there are then places available for people to buy that aren't sort of in the second home price range, which is what we have a lot of in this community mm-hmm. now right. with very little sort of first time home buyer purchase. Yes. 
I mean, if you look at the population of our region, I mean, some communities, the population has gone down. Mm -hmm. uh, our community, it's been dead flat uh, down a little bit. And we still have, uh, and, we, and we have been building mm -hmm. some units over the last 20 years, and we still have an extremely low vacancy rate. And that's because there are fewer people per home. So if we can move people out of those large homes, that can backfill for folks and uh, without building anything, just moving people around that are already in the community to create, to solve some of this housing problem that we have. That's interesting. But there's still not enough for anyone. And so I think some people worry that we are building for the rich and leaving the poor behind. And, you know, I think that even the lowest income folks in our community are often working. You know, you can work full time and still not be able to come anywhere close to a market rate apartment. And so I think it's really easy in an environment as scarce as this one for people to say, there's not enough for me, so I want to make sure there's not enough for this other person, right? Instead of saying, we need more affordable housing and we need more market-based housing and we need more subsidized housing we need a full mix and i think it's really important to own that that's important for the market it's important for employers it's important to have a it's also really important for a community to have a dynamic mix of people so that we're all just like knowing each other and building a democracy that works for everyone i i, I think that's right and uh I, I mean we might be dancing around the the g word here and that's you know, have we gentrified our community? Have mm -hmm. we gentrified Brattleboro, um, you know, pointedly because of the Brooks House project? Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I think of gentrification as displacement. And mm -hmm. gentrification in that sense is, is a pejorative term, right? We, we don't want to displace people from their homes and their communities um, because the, uh, it becomes so attractive uh, as a as a residential location that we we push people out, mm -hmm. and and, the, and I don't think uh, that we're at risk of that happening just yet in Brattleboro, um, and you know it might come someday. And, and in particular, it, and, uh, the talk about the Brooks House at the time of the fire, there were sixty one units in that building. There was more housing, and there was um, the the housing probably was on a square foot basis probably about what we charge right now i think our units got bigger um and the those people were displaced they weren't displaced by development though they were displaced by a fire yes yeah you know, the fire sent 61 families you know to other places and we brought those units back on in, in the way that we could and we brought them on with a mix of incomes because some of the the units in the Brooks House are not designed any differently, but they are available um, to folks and then at a, at a, who have a lower median um, family income, and they pay a reduced rate um, based, on, you know, based on that eligibility. But we, we had to replace some of those, those units, and I think as a community we did, and we did with the snow block, and you know, mm -hmm. maybe, Bob, you could talk about you know, bringing those units in to replace some of the, the units that were lost through a fire into, the, into, the, into our downtown. Yeah, I, I do think, I mean, you know, we've been part of building affordable housing for almost 30 years. And, you know, Vermont is, is unique in that affordable housing, it, it, it is subsidized and it is permanently affordable. So mm -hmm. in some ways, it acts as a uh, governor to future displacement um, to provide decent affordable housing at a price that people who don't make as much money can afford to rent. Um, 
there is a dynamic that's happening in the private sector where people can take uh, a housing unit that might be low and upgrade the finishes and get more rent if the market will demand. Um, and then as we add units on the upper end, um, you know, we'll start to see that normal distribution you know, of getting a few units at, uh, for higher uh, income folks and then locking down some at the lower end. In the but Brooks House, are the affordable units perpetually affordable, or is it just for a certain number of years? In the Brooks House, they're just for the seven-year compliance okay. period. Uh, but there is a range, even the ones that aren't subsidized, based on size. Um, so we had a diversity of sizes and therefore price points mm-hmm. uh, for folks to live uh, in, in that building. Um, I, I do think the, you know, we all often think in context of other places when we apply that to Brattleboro, though. So mm-hmm. gentrification is a term that we're familiar with from urban areas that are um, that are neighborhoods that are transitioning. So mm-hmm. there's a huge market demand to take, you know, in, a, in an area of a city that's been depressed and that now has uh, the market demand where a lot of people get displaced very quickly. And mm-hmm. it's back to an economy where somebody sees that. In fact, there are businesses organized around finding these transitional spaces and buying them at a low price and renovating them and then, and then making them into high end and displacing everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not a condition that, that exists here in Brattleboro. Um, you know, we don't have a market demand that's driving people to make investments at that scale and pace. Um, it might happen slowly, um, you know, as we start to see an economy that functions and as more units come on board. And I think as long as we have a healthy, affordable housing group, we'll continue to, to add a certain number of units a year because mm-hmm. that, that is also subsidized and that has a, has a limit on how much capital will come in over time. But, you know, if we continue to put properties like the snow block and, uh, you know, the co-op or wilder block or, you know, just within the context of the lower main street, um, there are five or six properties that I can think of that we've worked on in the last 30 years that are permanently affordable. I think one of my concerns about affordable housing with a capital A and a capital H versus housing that's affordable is that it's much more regulated. And so the experience of living in affordable housing, technical affordable housing, rather than just housing that meets your financial need, is that you are given to a lot more restrictions in how you live your life. You have much less privacy in both your finances and your own living experience and how your home is decorated and all of that. And we, as our economy gets worse and worse, um, or as folks' struggles become larger and larger, we see more and more of a lack of pri- more and more lack of privacy and more and more regulation upon people's daily existences, and we see that sort of across the board in how people are parenting. Um, you sort of lose privacy as you become lower income. There's a whole bunch of different ways that plays itself out, and so that for me is the one of my concerns around a tipping point that all affordable housing will be technically affordable housing versus a fully mixed market that actually just has enough housing that things sort themselves out based on what people have the ability to pay for and that you know yeah and in some ways housing problems are income problems yes and that Mm -hmm. you know we we can solve some of our uh, affordable housing shortages by finding ways to, to to get more people to make a better wage yes to afford higher rents and you know back to a, a virtuous cycle that talk, that bob talks about well if you can do that and then you can those folks those folks are making enough money to afford the good decent replicable housing mm-hmm. now the market will solve that problem and but you know we have 
we're not there right now. We have a problem in our market, both in our, our commercial markets, uh, rents, our residential rates, um, where they don't, we're back to that $100, $300 problem mm-hmm. we were talking about at the beginning. But I'm, I don't think that Bob and I think that this situation is permanent, that I, we, you know, we are optimistic that we can change that dynamic, that we can get to a place where um, the subsidies aren't necessary because the market starts to perform in a virtuous cycle. Mm-hmm. We're not there yet, but I think we're getting closer. I think I think Brattleboro is on the right side of a of a of, of that knife's edge right now, and I think we'll we'll have some momentum. You know, we have some attributes in this community that. You know, a lot of other Vermont communities have, and but few other places in the United States have. We we have a an engaged citizenry. We have a beautiful downtown. We have functioning public schools. Those are things that you know we take for granted, and other people don't have. Mm-hmm. And those are the real attributes that will help this mm-hmm. economy be sustainable for everyone in the long term if we can continue to invest in them. I, I was gonna, just going to add that statistically people have found that the communities where there are actively people engaged who care about it, mm-hmm. um, those are the communities that really um, do better over time. Mm-hmm. And, and Brattleboro has a long history of that. I mean, hundreds of years of, of private citizens investing and taking risk and saying, I'm doing this because of the community. Mm-hmm. So that's really important. And, and in some ways, a faith that the community is going to be better for it because of that. So. I know that you both do this for love of community and because you think it will build us long term. But where do you make money in it? Like what crack of the process do you make money in? That's sort of more transparent for an attorney, but I would love if both of you answer it. And you don't have to tell me what's inside your bank account, just sort of where, <laughs> where the, I'm just curious about where the profit lies in this process. Yeah, I, I, I think, um, again, to use an expression that may not be used often on the radio station is you know, Bob and I are vertically integrated in the projects, right? Mm-hmm. We, we can find savings and efficiencies because we don't also have to go out and acquire those services from somebody else. So mm-hmm. it helps to have the developer and the lawyer be very close and mm-hmm. the developer and the engineer to be very close and the engineer and the architect to be very close. Um, so uh, we sweep the floors on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you yeah, know, we, we find, those efficiencies uh yeah i the, the we've we we often talk about at our brooks house meetings that you know we we have um socialized the good and privatized the risk uh on this project and and it's worked out great and we mm-hmm. are delighted both on the social benefit and and we've we've escaped the private risk we haven't gone bankrupt which mm-hmm. is this was our first development and developers always go bankrupt in their first development so we avoided that um Congratulations. That's good. Yeah. yeah. We avoided that <laughs> catastrophe. But but that's you know it's uh, on the uh, let me let me say a few things. Um the um finding partners like Ben and Drew and Pete and Bob uh to work with and all the others was amazing. It it would not you know the Brooks House wouldn't have happened and many other projects wouldn't happen unless you tap into those community members who have a belief that come hell or high water, that thing has to happen. And you know, we've been lucky to find those projects and those people in those communities, and that's why they go forward. Anything you want to add, Bob? No, I, I think you know you, you did ask specifically, it's like, well, where, where is the profit or where do you make money on this? And um, 
these are generational decisions. We often say that, well, we didn't, we didn't go bankrupt. We didn't make any money. Hopefully our kids will be happy someday because it is a long-term um, investment and a lot of people ahead of us uh, that get paid, you know, the, the lenders and the banks. And so, you know, 20, 25 years from now, if we can continue the pace that we're at, um, we might actually pay the debt off. And as I say, our kids might inherit some value in it, but um, that's, uh, that's kind of how these real estate investments work. So, considering the work you both do, and considering you have a lawmaker in the studio with you right now, are there things the state could do um, to make this process for you guys, but also for um, the housing in Vermont in general, uh, make it more accessible, make it easier to get these projects done, anything like that, that in the system itself you'd like to see changed besides raising wages we know that definitely has to happen <laughs> i'll i'll compliment the state and suggest that it should continue to act as a market participant that uses its power as a purchaser of goods as a as a as a tenant to to invest those dollars that it's going to spend anyway in the places that it wants to prioritize mm-hmm. and it did that you know, here in the Brooks House with the state colleges coming in. Yeah, the, the, the state colleges were going to pay rent somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said, now, this is important to the town. It's important to the state that this place um, be redeveloped. And we're just going to sign a lease. And we talk about it, Bob and I talk about it all the time. The power of a bankable tenant makes projects go forward. We don't build anything in Vermont, maybe outside of Chittenden County, on spec, you know, on the, the, the speculation that you'll find a tenant. In mm-hmm. order to build anything anywhere we work, you need to have bankable tenants who are also taking a, a bit of a, a leap with you mm-hmm. in signing a long-term lease, and the state can do that. Yeah. And, and from our perspective, we often think about what are the assets that the state has to leverage to make things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, even, I've often thought that, you know, if the state would decide to purchase all of their uh, hardware supplies from downtown hardware stores, we would keep hardware stores in business in the downtown. You know, it's mm-hmm. a huge purchasing entity. Don't know where they get their stuff. And I'm sure they have competitive procurement requirements. But to prioritize how our money is spent to things that provide other dividends that we care about uh, is a way to do that. I think more importantly, you know, the, the Vermont has been very creative on, on trying to participate as a market participant. But there is not, I don't believe, a clear understanding of the problem. So when we go to the state house and we talk, and there was a lot of conversation around the TIF legislation a few years mm-hmm. ago, it's like mm-hmm. people thought, well, they're developers, they come, they make lots of money. Why would we want to find a way to make that gap happen? Mm-hmm. That's not reality that we see. Um, so just understanding uh, what the problem is, I think, will bring us a long way to identifying other solutions to continue to invest in the and leverage the assets we have. And, and somehow make the economy uh, start to work. Craig, did you have something you wanted to add? No, Bob covered it, okay. as he often does. <laughs> as we wrap up on the Montpelier Happy Hour, we have not talked about the happy hour part of the happy hour yet. That's right. And why we do this, or, or as Emily and I like to joke, why all the reasons democracy makes us drink. Yes. <laughs> so, wondering if either of you have a favorite cocktail either alcoholic or non that or even a favorite snack that's been really sort of warming you over these very cold nights we've been having 
Yes. <laughs> I'll go first. Oh, I was going to say, I didn't drink until the Brooks House started. <laughs> what was that? A Is that I, I, I'll, 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 I'll tell a, a very short story that, that uh, um, maybe indicates the closeness of our, my relationship with, with Bob. As, uh, we, we often go to Duo um, mm-hmm. and support uh, our tenant and a wonderful restaurant. And recently, well, I shouldn't say recently. It was a, it was a while back. Uh, I I ordered uh, a, a fiddlehead um, because I I love fiddlehead. It's a great beer. And Bob turned to me and said, "What do I buy? What do I get?" And I said, "You get fiddlehead." And I felt like an old married couple at the yes. time. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, I think uh, Bob and I will enjoy uh, an occasional uh, fiddlehead. And and we have a we have a a, a ranking. Of our ideas, there are one beer ideas, there are two beer ideas, and very rarely I'll get there to a three beer idea, and those are occasionally our best and worst. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. How about you, Emily? What's been warming warming you on these cold nights? Well, I've been, um, when the sun sets at four, I really want to be home and mm. in bed by about 7 p.m., <laughs> And so I've been actually, I can't believe I'm going to confess this on the radio, but I'm going to. I've been watching The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel in my bed on my computer um, in a little bit of a bingey way. That's very satisfying. As I prepared, I'd not have a single moment left of my spare time as I go up to the legislature. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of martini drinking there is. in that show. And I really like, you know, being a slightly displaced Jewish lady, I also really see a little bit of myself in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And so I've been thinking about martinis a lot, but I have not drank one yet. <laughs> so I've been, um, I think I'm going to drink one this weekend and I'm looking forward to it. That sounds like a plan. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to admit, hot cocoa has been my go-to for this past mm-hmm. week. And this this just shows... So I have to counterbalance the world of journalism with less heady parts of my life. And this just shows like how chaotic the commons has become over the past couple of weeks because my cousin gave me some hot cocoa with marshmallows that were shaped like stars. And it made me so happy (laughs) that, yeah, that's been my my drink of choice lately. Yeah. Thanks. You just got to counterbalance the, the brainwave sometimes mm-hmm. with the marshmallow stars. Well, gentlemen, Bob, Craig, thank you so much for coming in today. Yeah, we really welcome. appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure. As always, you can hear the Montpelier Happy Hour here live on WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. You can also find us on the Vermontitude SoundCloud page, the Vermontitude Facebook page, Uh, podcasted versions of this show and I have to thank all our listeners who tuned in from Brattleboro, Saratoga Springs, uh, some places in northern Vermont, New Hampshire, and even some folks tuned into the podcast from Japan and Ireland this past week. So keep coming back guys. We love it. Um, Emily, how can people reach you if they need to? emilykornheiser.org Emily Kornheiser on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. You can also email me at ekornheiser at ledge.state.vt.us Find me at my office hours in the co-op cafe every Saturday at 11 or just stop me when I'm walking down the street and we'll have a chat. Thank you. Thank you everyone. Have a great weekend and 
if you're if you're celebrating all the happy holidays that are happening